In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Let's review. Ever since the fall, so we're going to review everything that we've said over the past couple of nights. Ever since the fall, humans have been searching for God. Though they have not realized it all the time, God left within humans a desire for beauty. And most importantly, a desire for immortality. Both of those two things, beauty and immortality, are only fulfilled in God. So humans have looked for every experience on earth to satisfy their desire for beauty. Beautiful experiences, beautiful people, beautiful stuff. But all of it fades away and doesn't satisfy. Humans have also tried to live somewhat immortal lives. Whether it was a search, as we've all studied in history, the search for the fountain of youth, or even, uh, in, a, in, a, in a weirder way, stores like, uh, like Forever 21. Is it, is it still in business? No. Okay, so we have these stores that were proposing, you know, a concept of immortality on some, way, on some level. And then you have, you know, even today, you have women and men, uh, both who continue kind of to dress and to act like they're still in college or the desire to convince people that they are, are, are still young. and it, It's okay, but it goes to this concept of always trying to forget about death, forget about aging, and we start to think we can be young, we can act young, we can feel young for as long as possible. And we try to make a legacy for ourselves, we try to be a remembered. These are indeed all searches for God. And humans began to realize that None of those searches worked. None of those things satisfied. Their search for beauty and their desire for immortality could not be obtained. So humans began to try to satisfy themselves by seeking some higher power. Now forgive me, I'm, I'm giving a narrative that is not exactly chronological. It's, it's probably inaccurate in a little way, in, in a few ways, but my point is this, that there was always, there has always been a search for God. If you read your Old Testament, read it carefully, there was never a problem of atheism. It was never a problem in the Old Testament. It was always about who, which God did you serve? Everyone served a God of sorts. There were sins and there were hedonism, even among those people that had gods, but everyone believed in a God of sorts. Religion is all over the place. There was religion with Cain and Abel from the very beginning. And then humanity forgot about God and worshipped other things. So God reminded them with the flood and with Noah. And then they forgot again. So God reminded them a third time with Abraham. The Hebrew religion, though, took shape not with Abraham so much as with Moses and with the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. Moses goes up to the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai after fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He receives the law. And he didn't just, he didn't just get the Ten Commandments. He got instructions on how to build a temple and how, to, how the priest should sacrifice. He got the law, he got the temple, he got the sacrifices, he got the priesthood. We can lump those in three things. The law, the temple, and the priesthood. Religion kept going and all the law and prophets and sacrifices and priesthood, it was all done for the people of Israel. It was all done to produce one little girl. It was done to produce the mother of God, the Theotokos, who was the perfect product of the entire Jewish faith. And then Christ came 
from the Virgin Mary, and then religion ended. Christ is the end of religion because he calls us not to follow a set of rules and rituals, but he calls us into a relationship with himself. He came to us so that we might return to him. He came to us so that we might become like him. He came to us so that we could be as we were created to become from the very beginning. Our theology matters, and you need to understand it. Otherwise, you will just make all that we do here in the church an end and a goal in and of itself. I'm orthodox because I do the sign of the cross this way. I'm orthodox because I you know, go to Holy Week and we sing this hymn. That's not what, why Christ came. Remember the church and all we do within it are the necessary means to an end, which is producing fruit. All the stuff we do are the leaves on the tree so that we might produce fruit. You cannot produce fruit without those leaves, and those leaves without fruit are useless, are pointless. We ended yesterday by speaking about the church, which we belong to. We must share the same characteristics as we find in the church. The church that we are a part of. The church is one, so we ought to be united. United to the faith, united to everyone who is a member of the faith. The church is holy, so we also ought to be holy as well. The church is Catholic, so the faith must incorporate every part of our life and be open to all those uh, of, different, um, of different ethnicities, of different socioeconomic statuses, and so on and so forth. And the church is apostolic, which I realized, if you don't know what the word apostle means, you, you might not have gotten my point yesterday, which is the word apostle means to send. So we are first apostolic in that we rely on, or we are founded on the faith of the apostles, but also we are apostolic in that we are sent into the world. The great tragedy of the church, the great tragedy of the church is that we have convinced ourselves that we are only created or we're only here to serve ourselves and not to serve the world, not to serve our country or our state or our city or our you know, local neighborhood. That's the tragedy. Now today, in the, in the readings of today, we recall two events in the passion of our Lord Christ. One is that a woman anointed his feet with fragrant oil. This action of this woman was an act of love, was an act of humiliation on her part, was probably an act of embarrassment, was probably and was most definitely an act of sacrifice since the alabaster flask cost so much, probably close to a year's salary. This was an act that each and every one of us has to repeat. And, and what's so amazing about this act is that tomorrow we will uh, remember and, uh, and, and, and have again the, the washing uh, by Christ of his disciples' feet. That's tomorrow. And St. Peter, the apostle, initially refuses to allow Christ to wash his feet. Yet this woman, without seeing the example of Christ, is imitating Christ. Uh, she's wiser, you can say, than the apostle Peter in that she's able to imitate that example of Christ, um, of, of, of being able to humiliate herself and go down to the feet of another individual uh, to uh, put in aroma or to wash them in, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, 
The other event is the decision by Judas to betray Christ. It was premeditated and it was intentional. Now, if we look at it as a literal event, we might think that it's unrepeatable, but it is very repeatable. Now, I'm not going to see that every time that we sin, you betray Christ, but I will say, um, absolutely every time that you sin against your brother and against your sister, every time you sin against the church, every time you sin against a priest or a bishop, you betray Christ. Judas sells Christ for 30 pieces of silver, and we sell him for something much, much cheaper. We sell him and gain nothing from it, we do it and we do it casually. You might say, now come on, Abuna, I'm not as bad as Judas. Well, you won't be as famous as Judas, but let's think about it. He had sat at the feet of Christ for several years. He saw his miracles, he saw his face, he touched his hands, he heard his words, witnessed his compassion and love, and then he betrayed him, and then he didn't repent. We have seen more than Judas has seen. We have the life and example of every Christian, good or bad, every saint who's ever lived since Christ. We debate about whether Judas took the body of Christ on the night when Christ broke bread, and we like to get into this debate about whether he had the communion or not, but there's no debate about whether you or I have partaken of, this, of his body and of his blood. We've benefited of this 2,000 years of tradition. How is it that we can so casually in our relationship with our brothers and sisters sin against them? What you do to the least of these, my brethren, he says, you do to me. So if to the least of the brethren, he finds himself, um, he associates with himself, he identifies with them, what about to the rest? How is it that we've been in the church so long and are resistant to the life of the church. Why am I saying that we're resistant to the life of the church? Because again, it's not about the leaves. It's not about singing it's about how it affects us in our life. Today, we'll continue to discuss the characteristics of the church, which ought to be also found within us as well. Here are images of the church from scripture, and this is to help you and me understand the difference between the church as just leaves and the church that produces fruit. The church as simply a religion or the church where religion has ended and we are producing fruits in addition to our leaves. Now the sacred scripture is very expressive in its images of the church and here's just a couple of them. When Christ says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, every branch in me that bears uh, that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he, pr he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abides not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Herein is my Father glorified that, ye, that you bear much fruit. So shall ye, you be my disciples. This is a very important image. It ties both baptism and the Eucharist together. When we are baptized, 
the anointing of the oil that it's placed on us, uh, specifically the anointing of the, the Galilean oil or the oil of, uh, of the catechumens, we say, or the priest says, be baptized and be grafted, be grafted into the sweet olive tree of the one holy Catholic apostolic church. So we have this image of the tree in baptism. And also, by partaking of the Eucharist, we are nourished, so to speak, from the trunk and the roots, which are Christ. This is an image of union, of union. It's not an image of like, I am the queen bee and you are the worker bees, or I am the king and you are the slave, or I am the judge and you are the accused. It's a very beautiful image of union with Christ, which is only accomplished within the church. Second image is I, uh, of, of Christ as the good shepherd. In that, John 10, the other one was, uh, was John 15. John 10, he says, Verily, verily, I say to you, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs another way is a robber and a thief. He that enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And then he says, I am the door. I am the door. No one comes to the Father except through me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved, shall go in and go out and find pasture. And then, of course, he says, I am the good shepherd. It's another image of relationship. Not about, you know, doing certain services and certain rituals. It's a relationship. It's not about power. It's not that they, this is like, I am the shepherd and you are just the lowly sheep. And it's amazing that even being called a sheep today can be an insult. But it's a relationship of care and of love and of protection. And he says, I am the door. Salvation is through him. And our relationship with the Father is through him. Another image. In, Col in Ephesians 1, 23. The Father has put all things under his feet, Christ's feet. And gave Christ to be the head over all things in the, to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him that fills all in all. And this is connected with our theme that we might be filled with all the fullness of, of, of God. Like the vine and branches image, this is a beautiful image of union. This image of union where he is the head and we are of the body necessarily makes us think about the other members, the other people in the church, and that the health of the body is di directly correlates with the health of every person in the church. If there are holy people in the church, then we have a holy body. If there's sickness, then we are sick. I can tell you that St. John Chrysostom speaks about this image of the head and the body. And he speaks about it like, you know, if the hand is angry with the mouth and does not give the mouth food, what happens to the body? The body dies. And this is the same way as if one of us is angry with another person and, and in some way we're injuring other people, we start to cause pain to the church. It's not just about my ego. When we come to this place, we leave our egos at the door. In fact, we should always leave our egos at the door wherever we go, and we should have not ourselves be egocentric, but Christ-centric. A final image that we can say here is the image of Ephesians as well, uh, of the building of the church, the, the construction, uh, the image of it being a building. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple on the Lord. Another image of the church, each one's work affects the other. 
everything that was laid before, we have to lay ourselves completely on top of it in order for the structure to be sound and not to fall apart. This is the beginning and the purpose of the church, to be the body of Christ, which increases with the increase of God. And comparing the church with a building, the apostles are teaching us that that the building is not complete, that it still has to be completed with us. And the growth is not only in the sense of visible, like numbers of people, but it has to be spiritual growth, the perfection of saints, filling this place with earthly saints, or saints that are here on earth. So that in, when, when you know, everything is complete, Christ will be all in all. And of course you have the image of, of, of the church as a household. And there's other images. I mean, we have in the Old Testament the image of the ark. Um, and that's a beautiful image because, because, because why? I mean, the, the ark is the place of salvation. There was no like, you know, I'm sick and tired of this place. I'm leaving, right? You leave, you die. Right? That, that's, that's it. But, but today, in our day and age, it's like, I, I don't like this place. I'm going someplace else. Where, where is that image? Where is that understanding of what the church is? We take this idea of the church so lightly and so casually, and we've still got this individualistic idea of, you know, no one can judge me but God, and I am, uh, it's only me and God, and nobody else matters. Remember how we spoke about the characteristics of the church that need to be in us, how the church is one, and so we must be part of that one church. And Christ used so many other parables, ways of talking about the one flock and the one sheepfold and the one grapevine and the one foundation stone. He gave these, the, the single teaching and then he also gave us a single baptism and a single communion to show us the importance of this unity among ourselves. Somebody says to me, I'm going to go to another church. It, it's not, you're, it doesn't matter if you go to another church building. That's not the problem. The problem is whether, to begin with, we are part of the one church. Now you might say, of course I am. I've been baptized and I take communion and I believe in Jesus Christ. But that, that makes it sound like I just got these things that I checked off in a box and Christianity becomes a religion again. But that's not it. It's a way of life. And several necessary characteristics have to be within us where we are striving to be like Christ. A good example or a good way to evaluate and examine ourselves is the fruit of the Spirit. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the fruit that show that I am not just a bunch of leaves. Now those fruit have to grow in adversity, in harsh conditions. I must have it grow with my brother. I must have it grow with my sister, with my neighbor, with my enemy. I might run to the desert and think if I avoid everyone, I'll be able to grow fruit like crazy. But that's not true. And I can't blame my sins and my problems and my lack of fruit on my surroundings. It's their fault. You know, like I, I, I you know, when one of the kids comes to me and says, he made me do it or he made me, you know, get mad or he made me say that. No, nobody made you do anything. There was a story about a monk from the, in the Desert Fathers. He was so sick and tired of the monastery because the monastery is like a microcosm. It's just like every place else. He was so sick. He's like, I'm out of here. He said, I'm going to live as a solitary in the desert. And uh, his spiritual father said, no, you shouldn't do it. He said, and he went anyway. 
And so he went and he lived and everything was fine until one day his water pot fell over and broke. And he got so angry. And then he, when he came to himself, he realized that it's, it's not anything outside, it's him. It's him. He gets angry from something breaking. He gets angry from his brother. He realized that he has to go back to the monastery and face his anger uh, head on. Deal with it. Origen said quite accurately, there are some who are outside of the church, but in truth they are in the church. And there are some who are inside of the church, but they are indeed outside of the church. Do you see how Christianity and how the church, it's not just about checking things off on a list or doing certain activities, but about becoming more and more like Christ. The activities are necessary and they help us. The activities, the from the prostrations to the doing the sign of the cross to everything that goes on here. And we need to continue and strive. Sometimes church has the opposite effect on people. They become more angry more judgmental, more prideful, more unwilling to repent, more unloving. It's because the church activities are not enough. One very important understanding of the church which we have to submit to is that the church, as St. John Chrysostom famously said, is a hospital. It is not a courtroom for souls. The church, she does not condemn on behalf of sins but she grants remission of sins. He continues, he says, Nothing is so joyous in our life as the thanksgiving that we experience in the church. The church, the, joy, the joyful, um, in the church, the, those who are joyful sustain their joy. In the church, those who are worried receive joy. Those who are saddened are given joy. In the church, the troubled find relief in the church, the heavy laden find rest. Come, he says, come near to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden with trials and with sins. This is St. John's adding to it, who are heavy laden with trials and sins, and I will give you rest. He goes on and he says, what could be more desirable than to meet this voice? What is sweeter than this invitation? The Lord is calling you to the church to a rich banquet. He transfers you from struggles to rest, from tortures to relief, from, and He relieves you from the burden of your sins. He heals your worry and He gives you thanksgiving. He takes away your sadness and He gives you joy. No one is truly free or joyful except the one who lives for Christ. And such a person overcomes all evil and does not fear anything. The church is the place of reconciliation with God. How can I be reconciled with God if I am unable to be reconciled with my brother and my sister? God is the forgiveness and grants us the forgiveness of sins in the church. How can I be like Him if I am unwilling to forgive others? God is love. How can I be like Him if I am unwilling to love my brother and my sister, let alone my enemies? God is joy. How can I be with Him and like Him, yet filled with such anger? Now, the church is a hospital only in as much as I avail myself of her healing remedies. The church is a hospital only if I accept my shortcomings. She is also my mother. And in the church, 
not only do we have this image of hospital and mother, but she, in the church we all become the bride of Christ. And we together work on sanctifying ourselves. This is not the place only for saints, but it's the place especially for sin sinners who are striving and struggling to become saints. I'm going to end with reminding you of a reading. Um, I hope you've been able to read this, but if you haven't, I'll try to make it available. It's this um, funny interaction that happens be between St. John Chrysostom and Eutropius. And I think, you know, it's been mentioned before, but Eutropius was uh, a, a member of the government and he tried to cancel the, the, the law that allows you to take refuge and sanctuary in the church. So there's a law, and it's still, for the most part, I think still today, you, you, know, you, you commit a crime, you could run and take sanctuary in the church, and they can't go in and grab you uh, from there. It's an ancient law. Eutropius wanted to undo this. So Eutropius uh, is working hard on doing this, but yet at the same time he falls out of favor with the king. He falls out of favor with the king. So he falls out of favor with the king and he is going to be placed in jail and penalized and all this stuff. So he runs to, he, run, yeah, he knows, he knows. He runs to the altar and he is shaking and quivering and crying and it's, it's the day of the Lord. So this is, he's in the altar hiding. Um, and and uh, St. John Chrysostom says, look, look at this man. Even though he tried to cancel this law, yet he's taking advantage of this law and he's hiding here. But more importantly was what he said about the church. He says, St. John, what he says about the church, while this guy, he's giving a sermon, he's taking advantage of the situation. He says, you say it is because he who continually made war upon the church has taken refuge within it. You know, he's taken refuge in the church even though he made war against it. Yet surely we ought in the highest degree to glorify God for permitting him to be placed in this, in this situation that he experiences the power and the loving kindness of the church. Her power in that she has suffered this great uh, attack and in consequence of the attacks which he made upon her, yet her loving kindness in that she even though he attacked her, she now shields him in front of him. And she puts the shield in front of him and has received him under her wings and placed him in all security, not resenting any of the former injuries he caused against her. But most lovingly, she opens her bosom to him. For this is more glorious than any kind of trophy, than any brilliant victory. This puts both Gentiles and Jews to shame. This displays the bright, the bright aspect of the church in that having received her enemy as a captive, she spares him. And when all has... <laughs> when, when, when all have despised him in his desolation... She alone, like an affectionate mother, has concealed him under her cloak, opposing both the wrath of the king 
and the rage of the people and their overwhelming hatred for him. He now has become an ornament of the altar. He's, it's so funny the way he's delivering. He's like, it's a strange kind of ornament, you might say, when the accused sinner, this extortioner, this robber is permitted to lay hold of the altar. No, I say not. For even the harlot took hold of the feet of Christ, she who was stained with the most accursed and unclean sin, yet her deed was no reproach to Christ, but rather redounded to his admiration and praise. For the impure woman did no injury to him who was pure, but rather was the vile harlot rendered pure by the touch of him who was the pure and spotless one. Grudge not then, O man, we are the servants of the crucified one, who said, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. But they say, He cut off the right of refuge here by his ordinances and, he, and all of his diverse kinds of laws. Yes, yes. Yet now he has learned by experience what it was that he did. And, and, and he himself, by his own deeds, has been the first to break the law and has become, he, he broke the law basically, he broke the law against the sanctuary law, but he's the first to break that law and to become a spectacle to the whole world. And silent though he is, he utters a warning to all of us saying, do not such things as I have done, that you suffer not the things that I have suffered. Now that week, Eutropius, decided to leave the church. And when Eutropius decided to leave the church, um, he got in trouble and he got captured. And I don't know if he was put to death or what, but he, was, he, he left the church. And so St. John the next week gives another sermon. He says, a few days ago, the church was besieged because while Eutropius was in here, the army was outside ready to take him. The church was besieged and an army came and fired issue uh, with their eyes, yet it did not scorch the olive tree, which is the church. The swordsmen unsheathed, yet no one received the wounds. The imperial gates were in distress, but the church was in security. And yet the tide of war flowed hither, for here the refuge was sought, or the refugee was sought, and we withstood them, not fearing their age. And wherefore pray thee? Because we held as sure. The pledge saying, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And when I say the church, I mean not only a place, but a way of life. I mean not the walls, but the laws of the church. When you take refuge in the church, do not seek shelter merely in the place, but in the spirit of the place. For the church is not a wall and roof but it is faith and life. You see, this kind of goes back to the point of what, I'm saying, of what we've been talking about, how the church is not uh, 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 this religion that we follow rituals, but it's a way of life. Do not tell me that the man having been surrendered was surrendered by the church. If he had not abandoned the church, he would have not been surrendered. Do not say that he fled here for refuge and then, and then was given up. The church did not abandon him. And the church never abandons anyone. He is the one who abandoned the church. He was not surrendered from within the church walls, but outside of the church. Wherefore did he forsake the church? Did he desire to save himself? You should have held fast to the altar. 
There are no walls here. But there was guarding providence of God. Were you a sinner? God does not reject you. For he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The harlot was saved when she clung to his feet. Have you heard the passage read today? Now I say these things that you, that you may not hesitate to take refuge in the church. Abide with the church. And the church does not hand you over to the enemy. But it, if you fly from the church, if you flee from the church, the church is not the cause of your capture. For if you are inside the fold, the wolf does not enter. But if you go outside, you are liable to be the wild beast's prey. Yet this is not the fault of the fold, but it's of your lack of courage. The church has no feet. Do not speak to me about walls and arms, for walls will wax old over time, but the church has no old age. Walls can be shattered by barbarians, but over the church, not even the demons can prevail. And that my words may not be just, just uh, empty, there is evidence of these facts. How many have assailed the church and yet the assailants have perished while the church still stands today? How many uh, such might have happened to the church? Um, she is wounded yet does not sink under the wounds. She is tossed by the waves yet not submerged. She is troubled by the storms yet not shipwrecked. She wrestles but is not overcome. She fights but is not vanquished. Wherefore then did she suffer this war to be that she, why has she suffered like this? That she might now, she might make manifest her splendor and the splendor of her victory. And I'm writing this, there's so, I'm, I'm reading this, there's so much more that I have here, forgive me. But I'm reading this to you so that you can understand this road that we've been going down since the very beginning. That that the church is your home, the church is our home, and the church is, the, is what gives us all the gifts of the Father. Church is not something we do, church is something we become. And if, if you become church, it's something that you're constantly striving and struggling to become. And we come to church often to remind ourselves what it means to become church, to be part of this assembly, to be uh, numbered among the ranks of such great individuals. And it's not about our perfection. We're seeking perfection. We, we will not become perfect outside of the church and without Christ. All of this has been given to us. And in this week, as we are uh, marching with Christ to the cross, we are also at the same time examining ourselves, examining our commitment, examining our level of uh, of response to what Christ has given to us and what we memorialize in this week, year after year, what He has given to us, what has our response been? And I also say this as, as, as a warning, uh, a slight warning. Be careful how we approach the church, how we approach the mysteries of the church, how we approach the services of the church. Too often we have been um, comfortable in criticizing what goes on and we have not spent enough time reaping the benefits of what has been given to us. You see how St. John praises the church and yet how quickly we are to speak ill or to point out a mistake or to casually say, I'm leaving, I'm going someplace else. 
Now, of course, it's not about the building that you pray in. And it's not even about, you know, I remember when I was growing up, my priest, if, a, if a, one servant from our church said, I'm going to serve in another church, he was happy. He wasn't sad. He wouldn't feel like, oh, why don't you serve with us? Why don't you stay here? Because he, and even with my own priesthood, there was an opportunity, or you could say there was, um, it was presented to me to serve as a priest in that church as well as over here. And with the two, we decided to come here. Uh, the call, we felt called here. And at the same time, he did not say, why didn't you become a priest here? Why didn't you? He understood the oneness and the unity of the church. And I hope that we too can understand that it doesn't matter where you pray. It just matters that you become the church, that you understand the life in the church. You understand what you've been called to. Forgive me for speaking uh, too long uh, today, but I hope that these words are not just words, but something that can be applied uh, in our lives. To God be the glory, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, now and ever into age of all ages. Amen.